0: Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pan and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Hi, Dr. Melanie Chen. It's so nice to see you again. Welcome to Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. The last time we spoke, we were on my old podcast, Junior Doctor's Corner, but it's so nice to catch up with you again and I'm excited to talk through your journey because my understanding is that there's been some really interesting changes since the last episode we did together, so welcome. Thanks very much, Dana, and good to chat again. Let's start with something that I ask a lot of our guests, which is, If you could summarize yourself
1: in a few words, what would they be? I actually think I summarized this in the inaugural CCIM conference in Sydney a few years back, and it was on the basis of an epiphany I had at one juncture of my very strange career, (laughs) which was, I have the heart of a doctor, the brain of a lawyer, and the soul of an artist. Very nice. I love that one. I think that sums me up. It sounds a bit cheesy, but when it came into my head one day, I thought, that's it. That kind of explains my journey or the reason for my journey. Amazing. I love that. So let's start with the heart of the doctor. So you became a medical doctor
0: first, is my understanding. So can you talk us through early years, young Melanie, how did you end up in medicine in the first place?
1: Yeah, interesting question. Thank you, Dana. That was also not a linear decision, but then again, whose decision is linear when you're a teenager? Certainly, I grew up around medicine. My dad was a very passionate and also very prominent pediatric surgeon, and he just loved his job so much. He used to talk about it. Used to take my brother and I on ward rounds in the kids' hospitals on the weekends, and we just hung around and. So I grew up around it. And I guess I thought to myself, if dad loves it this much, it must be good. (laughs) So that's how my dad influenced me, I suppose, was through his absolute passion for it and for helping people and for helping young children. And then through school, (laughs) I found that what I loved doing the most was writing, actually, and analysis. So I thought I would be a lawyer, but I found when I was in school, my forte was really in writing and analysis, not so much things like science and maths. And I was always much more humanities orientated or Mm -hmm. arts orientated. So I guess at that time I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer because it just seemed to be the right fit at the time. My dad used to say, I also used to like arguing, which I completely denied, (laughs) (laughs) vehemently denied. So anyway, for a few years in school, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then I got to about maybe year 11 or 12 and thought to myself, I don't feel I'm tough enough to be a lawyer. Maybe I need to do something that is a bit human, (laughs) I guess is what I was thinking at the time. Obviously, I didn't really know. Yeah, of course. I didn't really know. I didn't know at all what it was like to be a lawyer. I suppose I really loved talking to people and getting to know them and understanding how they functioned and how their minds worked and basically working through those growing pains either by myself or with other people or sharing issues all that kind of stuff and so I eventually decided I wanted to become a psychiatrist Mm. and then I thought I'd go and do medicine so in summary the reason I did medicine was because I wanted to be a psychiatrist.
0: Ah and so talk us through what was medical school like for you? How did you find it? And I believe that by the time you were coming towards the end of your medical school, you were starting to
1: question whether medicine was the right path for you. Yes, Dana, that's right. Not just at the end, but also at the beginning and in the middle of it, I stopped thinking about it. So first year medicine and back in those days, it was a six year course. And the first year was pretty much all science. And as I mentioned, I was never really into science. The subjects I did in year 12 were maths and English, which I think were compulsory at the time. Mm. And I did chemistry, which was my subject to get into medicine. And then I did French and Indonesian. I guess that just shows that where my Mm. interest really lay. At that time, I I loved languages and I I was quite good at them. But of course, once I started doing medicine, I, I lost that all. So when I started medicine in the first year, as I said, it was all... Science actually, and I suppose I hadn't realized <laughs> as a sixteen going on seventeen year old applying to medicine, I hadn't realized how science-based medicine was, which sounds ridiculous now, right? But this is how little I knew, and I'd seen the sort of fun parts of medicine, going yeah. around wards and helping people, and the young kids sitting up and smiling at you and waving, and I saw the, the happy parts of medicine in first year, I thought, oh dear, this is really heavy and boring, actually, (laughs) to be quite frank. I really didn't enjoy it. And so I think towards the end of the first year, my first year, I thought, this isn't, I really don't like this. Uh, Maybe I should go back and do law. Maybe that's what I should do. But then I thought to myself, no, 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 I I think it'll be better once I start seeing patients. I know it'll be better once I start seeing patients. And to that extent, I was right. (laughs) And so I thought at the time, I didn't want to keep switching back and forth. So I could go back. I didn't want to start doing law and then go back to medicine and go back. So I just thought, I'm just going to stick to this and I know it's going to get better once I start seeing patients. So that's what happened. And after first year, I just got on the treadmill and never got off really until my fifth year, as you recall. I just really dug deep, I suppose, in my fifth year in medicine and really threw myself into it in a way that I hadn't before. And I suppose part of it was because it was in a clinical context by then. We were rotating Mm -hmm. through different specialties. Yes. Rotated through psychiatry. And I have to say I loved it. Okay. It was the most interesting part of medicine I found. However, I decided in that process that I didn't want to be a psychiatrist. Not because I didn't find it interesting, but at that time anyway, back in 1995, as a very young person, perhaps I had idealistic ideas of what medicine should be and I I felt perhaps as a psychiatrist I wasn't going to be able to help people as much as I would have liked to. I I guess I felt at that time what I saw in psychiatry was about maintaining people at a functional level and you couldn't Mm. necessarily cure them and have probably moved on now maybe with different types of therapies but certainly Mm. that was what I saw at the time. And the other thing, I suppose, was I think I am a bit of an empath, I suppose is what they mm. call So it's probably not mm. a good specialty for someone who mm. is a bit of an empath, essentially. And I only learned that word many years later. And once I heard that word, I thought, yeah, that's me. Mm. When I didn't want to do psychiatry, I thought, okay, what do I do now? Given that was the whole reason I did medicine in the first place. So as I said, I, I dug deep into everything else. And it was during my paediatric rotation, ironically, that I started really questioning and probably part of the reason was I put a lot of pressure on myself during the paediatric rotation because I was rotating through the hospital where my dad used to work. I think he'd moved overseas at that time. But all my examiners or a lot of my examiners were his colleagues. They all knew who I was and I guess I just put a lot of pressure on myself. So basically I absorbed myself in medicine in a way I'd never done before because of that pressure that I put on myself. I wanted to make my dad proud of me. I mm. wanted to be good at it. Dad was so good at it and I wanted to be good at it. And I wasn't as good at it as dad, to be frank. I never would be. I was never going to be. And I guess at that time I felt the study of medicine was not something I loved enough to dedicate myself to it in a way that I needed to or in a way that I knew that I needed to dedicate myself to it to do it justice. And that was my conclusion during my pediatric rotation in 1995. Before I came to that realization, that I'd been thinking about all sorts of things, like trying to do medicine or surgery or geriatrics or mm. pediatrics. And actually, for quite a long time, I actually decided I wanted to be a geriatrician. Is actually relevant to where I am now because I loved the idea of really treating a person holistically and enhancing their quality of life. And I always had a bit of an affinity towards the older generation, soft spot, I guess maybe in a way that my dad had towards children, I felt Mm -hmm. that towards the older generation, full of respect for the lives that they've lived and really wanting to support them as best I could. So for quite some time, I was thinking, I want to be a geriatrician. But as I said, when I got to that stage, when I was just doing nothing but studying medicine, when I was doing nothing but putting my head in the books, yeah, I realized medicine maybe wasn't really for me. So then...
0: At any of those points, did you confide in your dad and say, hey, I am having a lot of
1: doubts about medicine? And did he give you any advice? Yeah, good question, Dana. Thank you. Um, I remember that at that time, my parents were living overseas. So me and my brother were living in the family home on our own, studying at uni. And I do remember when I was studying in my PEDS rotation, because I had really thrown myself into it. I kind of isolated myself from a lot of people at that time because I was so stressed about it, I think. And I don't really remember talking to anyone about it during that time. All I was just focused on was studying and trying to do well and then going through these thoughts on my own. I don't really remember talking to anyone about it at the time. What I do remember is coming to this conclusion that it wasn't what I was going to do and that therefore I was going to leave medicine. Once I finished it, because I was already in my fifth year. So Mm. I thought, you know what? I'll finish it, do my sixth year and do my internship and then Mm. let's see. Mm. So that was my first thought. My first thought was, I don't have to do this. (laughs) I'm not going to do this. It's not for me. Then my second thought was, okay, so what do I do now? (laughs) And then my mind went back to what I'd originally wanted to do at school, which was study law. And In fifth year, we'd also had some lectures in the community medicine course around medical law. Mm. So at that time, the subject was community medicine and medical law was part of that subject, which is also interesting in itself because I'm not sure we would call law part of community uh, medicine anymore these days. Anyway, I found that topic really interesting. I connected with it. And so when I realized I didn't want, when I was thinking about, okay, what should I do? I said, well, why don't I go back and and study law, and then Mm -hmm. combine law and medicine in some way, Mm -hmm. and make that my specialty. So essentially, I was trying to find a niche for myself in medicine, some kind of specialty, and I, I couldn't. And so then I decided to go back to what I thought I was probably more connected with in terms of my brain, as I suppose, initially and combine that with medicine because there were still aspects of medicine that I really admired and I wanted to be a part of and it was such Mm -hmm. a big part of my life. So that's what happened. So I decided, okay, well, I'll finish this, I'll do my internship, get my registration, and then I'll go and study law. And once I made that decision, I felt a big weight off my shoulders, actually. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually, I felt a big weight off my shoulders once I made the decision that I wasn't going to be a doctor, (laughs) and then even more weight when I decided what I was actually going to do. But of course, things have evolved since then. Yeah. So let's explore the part
0: of you, the brain of a lawyer. So I understand you went on to complete a law degree. Tell us what that was like, because you are one of the few people that get to compare what it's like to study a medical degree and then a law degree. How was that for you? Was that more enjoyable than all the sciencey bits that you had to put
1: up with in medicine? Very much, Dana. But I will say, actually, first of all, that there's not that few of us anymore, if that's the right way to say it. It's certainly back in the 90s, it was very unusual. But now there's lots of us who have done both medical and law degrees. So there's nothing rare about me by any means. So I just wanted to say that there's lots and lots of doctors and lawyers out there or doctor lawyers out there. And it's interesting how everyone has done different things in different ways. But for me, back in 98 was when I went over to the UK to study law. Finished my internship in 97. I'd always just wanted to go to the UK anyway, just for something different, a different experience. And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to go to Oxbridge? (laughs) So randomly applied to Cambridge and I got in. And so I, yes, I went to Cambridge, studied law there for two years. And yeah, I loved it, partly because it was Cambridge. A lot of the reason was because it was Cambridge and it was just an amazing experience. It was obviously beautiful. You were just living and breathing academia, I suppose, a lot of the time, at least, I felt I was. Although obviously, in any uni, there were social things and parties. But again, I had this thing where I threw myself into it because I thought, wow, oh my God, I'm suddenly doing the thing I've been wanting to do for such a long time and threw myself into my books again. But having said that, this time I enjoyed it. and loved reading about the law. I loved reading judgments. I remember... House of Lords judgments in particular. I got very excited reading them, very different to reading medical texts, I remember. And, and I was surrounded by really inspiring people. Our lecturers, tutors who we called supervisors, were authors of textbooks and papers and just been brilliant minds. So that was really inspiring to be around. But I think one of the things I loved about the law was that I would say creative argument <laughs> as well, which is what I saw through those judgments and what I enjoyed about them and coming to the inadverted commas decision. Yeah, I just found really fascinating. And so,
0: take us through what happened next because you went on and did combined your medical and law degree, worked for an MDO, and then after that, a law firm. Can you talk us
1: through those years? Yeah, I did lots of different things, actually. So, what happened was after I finished my law degree, I went on and qualified as a solicitor in London because the system in the UK is a bit different. So, basically, all up, I was in the UK for five years, was admitted as a solicitor in England and Wales, and then decided it was time to come home, mainly because my family was all here at the time and I felt I needed to be be home. So after five years and after qualifying as a lawyer in England, I came home. I think I'd done about maybe two or three days of locums <laughs> during that time. I'd picked up a few Christmas shifts, I think, in aged care, actually. Oh, well, as a doctor. Course, yeah, as a doctor, as a locum doctor in geriatrics, because as I mentioned, it was something that I was comfortable with and I enjoyed. But that was pretty much the only few shifts I did. And I came home sort of five years later. And at that time, I thought, you know what? I've got a clean slate now. I'm qualified as a doctor. I'm qualified as a lawyer. What do I do now? And all I ever knew was I wanted to combine the two. But I didn't know how that was going to look like or what that was going to look like. And at the same time, after being away for five years, I freaked out at the thought of losing seven years of my life studying medicine. So even though I'd made the decision... To leave medicine, I went back to it. Oh. So I started locuming, and I did that while I was deciding what I wanted to do with the combined qualifications. Essentially, so I didn't immediately take measures to have myself admitted as a lawyer in Victoria. I took maybe I don't know six to twelve months. I can't remember. I was locuming and finding myself again, and talking to lots of different people. I met with lots of different people, talked to lots of different people, and just to try and find out where I wanted to go next. So the very first job at that time, so I was living in Melbourne, locuming. My parents were living in Adelaide at the time, so I used to go there quite often to see them. My dad at the time was working at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide, I believe. And one day he came home and he said, well, I've met someone really interesting you should meet at the hospital. And he was always connecting me with people. (laughs) amazing like that. And so, oh, yeah, cool. And he said it was basically a guy on the ethics committee. So I said, okay, because obviously I always had an interest in ethics as well, and there is a bit of a relationship between law and ethics, even though they're different. So I met this guy who was an ethicist, and he was teaching, he was running a health law course at Flinders Uni, and so asked me if I would teach with him at Flinders Uni, basically health law to health science students, so nursing students, paramedic students, et cetera. So I said, yeah, sure, sounds good. And then through him, I met my first boss in Melbourne, and that was at the Department of Human Services, it was called at the time. wasn't directly through him, but it was indirectly through him because, again, I was just meeting lots of people and talking to lots of people, and that's what happened. So my very first job in law in Melbourne was at the Department of Human Services in the health law team, and that was interesting. I did that for about six months, and I was also flying back and forth between Adelaide to teach at Flinders uh, to help develop this course at Flinders, and then I got lured back into private practice, into a law firm. And the reason I say leeward back is because actually when I spent two years in a law firm in London, which is the time that you spend in the UK to qualify as a solicitor, it's like your Mm. internship, your traineeship. Mm. So that was two years in London. And after those two years, I'd actually thought to myself, I don't really like law firms. I don't think it's for me. Uh, (laughs) I don't think I want to work in a law firm. But I got leeward back in Melbourne because I thought, you know what, maybe that was just law firms in England and maybe I should try a law firm in Mm. Australia. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the obvious things for me to try out was working in medical negligence. I think that's always the most obvious area for someone like me to look at, or at least certainly it was at the time. So I got lured back to a law firm to work with uh, a special counsel there in medical negligence in defense. So after six months at the DHS, even though I was really enjoying that, I thought I had this opportunity. I thought, okay, I'm just going to give it a go, work with this law firm as a medical defense lawyer. So I did that. I I, start, I went to this law firm, and after about six months, the, the medical negligence work had dried up. Actually, because oh. know, it was it was just just changes were happening, which I hadn't been aware of at the time that I joined. But the firm. you
0: were very much defending doctors, yeah, rather actually, than persecuting them. Or no, like yes, right, yes.
1: <laughs> I've prosecuted. Yeah, but I've always only worked in defence. Yes, that's right. Because I guess I felt a loyalty towards doctors and there's a camaraderie that supported me that work but that work in that firm dried up and so because that was getting quiet in that area of work I did a, started doing a lot of work for the maritime team which is so the shipping team because I needed well, that's to quite help. a shift yeah <laughs> so I did that for about six months I loved it actually because maritime law really encompassed So many different aspects of law, contract, tort, human rights. It was fascinating. So I really loved that. We arrested a ship. It was on the news. It was just really cool. So for for a while, I thought maybe I'll be a medical and maritime lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it that much. And I guess that sort of demonstrates how much I just loved the law at the time. Mm. But then, of course, as luck would have it, the maritime team left to go to another firm. So after about 12 months at this firm, I thought, oh, okay, well, the work I want to do isn't here anymore. So Mm. I left and I went back to locoming. Since that time off and on, I I basically kept locoming. I locumed maybe at the same time as jobs or in between jobs when I was trying to figure out what to do. But certainly every time I was in a bit of a hiatus, I went back to Mm locoming. So I did that for a while and I was enjoying that actually <laughs> so I really enjoyed the locuming uh, mostly in emergency because as I predicted it was much better once you were seeing patients and interacting with patients and I enjoyed medicine a lot more in that context and my head in the box and then a few months later I was admitted as a lawyer in the Supreme Court of Victoria and I met uh, another doctor lawyer there when oh. I was being admitted and she said oh why don't you come to this firm. So I went back to another law firm, actually, as a medical negligence lawyer doing defendant work for for hospitals this time rather than doctors. Right. And again, I loved that. That was great. So I did that for maybe a couple of years. And again, it just came to a stage where as much as I I loved it, I realized that it wasn't something I wanted to do forever at the same time Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the medical Mm -hmm. negligence stuff, while it's really interesting in terms of liability and causation and all of that, at the end of the day, as a lawyer, it's really all about a number, getting to right. a number, as in in terms of costs and compensation and all mm. that. So, and it was quite process-driven in the end. So I had that thought and then I thought, they're not also around the same time. All my family who were in Australia, or they all left for overseas. So right. my parents went back to Malaysia, my brother went to London to do his fellowship. And then I thought, mm, what am I doing here? You know, I'm here on my own. This is, I think, six years Six years old I had been back for six years. So I went back to London because there was no reason for me to be in Melbourne anymore. And But because I wanted to go back to London and because I needed a job in London, I went back to medical negligence in London, even though by that time I knew that I didn't really want to do it anymore oh, oh, because okay. that was the easiest way for me to, to get a job It was in a London. stepping stone. Yeah, it was a stepping stone. That's what I was doing. That was a natural way rather than what well, wasn't really going to be possible for me to move to London and find a completely different job I still didn't really know what I wanted to do anyway so so I did that and my goal was just to be in London for a while and I did that for another couple of years and then decided no, this is it I really don't enjoy this work and I don't enjoy being in a law firm I was back in a London law firm again (laughs) oh I went to a couple and I just didn't, didn't enjoy them so left that Mm-hmm. and went back to locoming. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that you have locoming to fall back on each time. It was actually. It was really secure safety net for me. And not only mm. that, I, I enjoyed it and every time I went back. So I have to admit, when I was, went back to locoming, I was actually thinking about leaving London as well. I was thinking about maybe coming home or moving to Asia or, or something mm. like that. I was very really lost for a long time, to be honest. I went to back to locoming while I was deciding what I wanted to do. And then because I loved it so much, I stayed. (laughs) I didn't move. So I I think I was working for about three months. Mm. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who was a recruiter there, who Mm. used to be a lawyer but went to recruitment, about quite an unusual job that had popped up with an insurer in London. And at that stage, as I mentioned, I still hadn't decided what I was going to do or where I was going to be. And this job sounded quite interesting. It was with an insurer. It was uh, working on Italian Medical malpractice claims—something so oh. completely different. So I went for an interview, and the guy who interviewed me, who ended up to be one of my best friends, and he wasn't my best friend when I interviewed.
0: Yeah, we yep. became, he became like, best friends
1: <laughs> as we worked together. He was also a doctor and lawyer, and also from Australia, and had also oh. worked in one of the same firms that I had. So we oh, can. Connected- what are the chances? Right, exactly. So we connected straight away and we worked closely together for the next two years, working on these Italian medical malpractice claims, traveling back and forth from Italy and London, in between Italy and London. Yeah, it was really great. It was a really great experience. The first year was really interesting, learning about the Italian civil system and how things operated there and how they were so different to what we were used to. I have to admit, by the second year, it was getting less interesting, but obviously I was enjoying the travel to Italy. So I kept doing that again, knowing that I wasn't going to stay there forever. So as you see a bit of a pattern here, I I, I do these things and then I I get a sense that it's not a forever thing, but I stick with it or until I decide what I'm going to do. So that's again what happened. And I was actually, my key decision at the time was whether to stay in London or come back home, basically. Again, because home for me is Melbourne uh, and there was no one in Melbourne. My brother was living in Queensland, but at that time my parents were still in Malaysia. So it wasn't a straightforward decision Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'd built myself a life in London. So anyway, uh, so I didn't take any measures to consider what I wanted to do for work or, or change jobs at that time because I was trying to decide where I wanted to live. And so I ultimately decided that I wanted to be back home. So basically, at every decade of every turn of the decade for me, I came back home to Australia. So I came back to Australia when I was from England when I was 30, and I came back from England to Australia when I was 40. So wow. I decided, no, home is where I want to be. And so that's what I did. So I came back home, and again, coming back home, I needed to find a job. <laughs> mm. uh, first person I was always going to contact, even when I came home, was my old boss from the law firm that I loved. So I did that and he didn't have any vacancies at the time, but he said, well, you know what? This insurer does, a state insurer. So they were looking for a major claims executive. So again, I was working on medical negligence claims, but again with insurers. So I went from the insurer... In London to insure in Victoria, but that was a public insurer as, a, as opposed to a private insurer. So I was in the insurance space, as a medical indemnity insurance space for a couple of years, basically as a claims manager. And that's I did that. So in back in Melbourne for about a year, I was a major claims executive managing essentially claims that fell under medical indemnity. And again, got to the end of that and thought, you know what? I never want to touch a claim again. So I moved from not wanting to be a medical negligence lawyer in a law firm to not actually wanting to touch a medical negligence claim again. I just found, for me, I just didn't get any job satisfaction from it. I felt it was like a bit of a loose situation because you always, in a med-nate claim, no, no matter the result, you always have one party who's been injured or who has the perception that they've been injured, and another party who felt deeply remorseful about what happened. but um, it, it
0: didn't always have a positive outcome or feeling to it. No, look,
1: it. I, I guess I remember one of the last claims I worked on was a doctor who was a witness because bearing in mind it was the hospital that the claim was against, not the doctor, but the doctor working for the hospital was a key witness. I remember we were in a conference with, with counsel, with a barrister uh, about a claim, and this doctor was a very good emergency doctor in training just broke down in tears. He was devastated, even though he'd done absolutely nothing wrong. He'd done, in fact, he'd done everything completely right uh, in the way that we would see it as doctors. But in law, you, there's other arguments that you can hmm. use to support a claim. But anyway, that devastated me as well. And he was actually talking about leaving his training program and doing something else. I don't know what happened in the end, but yeah, I found, found that heartbreaking. I'll, n- I'll never forget that. That's the sort of thing I guess I, I'm referring to when I'm talking about a situation because you'll still mm. have a doctor at the end of the claim. He's always going to mm. feel bad about what happened in some form regardless mm. of what they did. I left the claims world and I thought I didn't want to keep looking backwards. Mm. I felt that MedNeg was more destructive, I suppose, in terms of the medicine itself because of what I saw, because of this doctor crying and and wanting to leave his training program, despite being a very very good doctor. And I thought, I want to do something more constructive. But again, I didn't know what that was. I went back to locuming. (laughs) 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 So that's what I did. So for a while, I was locuming, and I was actually also doing some private surgical assistance, assisting with orthopedics for a while, but also decided I didn't like that. So I was more into the locuming. And then I think, is this the point
0: where you discovered or fell into clinical governance. Can you tell us a bit about how you ended up
1: where you Uh, were? Oh, yes. Okay. So in summary, from that time onwards, I ended up with Mm -hmm. the MDOs. So I was a medical legal Mm -hmm. advisor for a, a couple of MDOs and worked for another one as well. And then I ended up essentially as an aged care lawyer around the time the Aged Care Royal Commission was picking up. Right. So I was an aged care lawyer in a law firm for a couple of years. So this is where this clinical governance journey was triggered and in, in retrospect, it's probably what I wanted to do for a long time, but hadn't been able to articulate it in that way. When I was talking about doing something constructive rather than destructive, mm. I think that's what I was thinking without realizing mm. if that made sense, because it wasn't as prominent, I suppose, at that time as it is now. So I will actually write a little bit back. So back in 2018, I was still locuming off and on and I think I was doing a lot of locoming anyway until 2018 and then I decided uh, enough's enough <laughs> and it's time to draw a line under clinical medicine. But again, I, I got to a stage where I felt I couldn't do it justice anymore. Hmm. So in 2018, I did my last emergency shift, said to the hospital, I'm not going to renew my contract, I'm going to stop clinical practice and I also, and this is relevant because I also converted my APA registration to, hmm. to non-practicing. Ah. And I did that deliberately, and it was a really hard decision, but I did that deliberately to resist the temptation of picking up another shift again Mm. and and getting back Mm -hmm. into the cycle. So Mm. I converted to non-practicing in 2018, and that was fine. And then I went into the law firm as an aged care lawyer, et cetera. And then, of course, 2020 came and Mm. all that, and I was put on this pandemic sub-register. So all of a sudden, after having given up my general registration, I suddenly had it back. (laughs) And I thought, okay. (laughs) And at the same time, obviously there was a lot of work in aged care at the time. And really given it was in the context of a pandemic, a lot of that work to me was really about clinical governance. And so I found that I was thinking about clinical governance a lot more and talking about clinical governance a lot more. And everything I was looking at was about clinical governance. And that was really where my passion lied. That's really what I cared about. Of course, at that time, because I was just working as a lawyer, I only saw clinical governance in terms of risk. I didn't think beyond that. But nevertheless, that was what I was thinking about more and more at the time. And then I guess it got to towards the end of 2020, and a lot of other things happened, obviously. But again, I started to get that feeling that maybe I wasn't in the right place for me. And I wasn't really so interested in all the other legal stuff. (laughs) I was really just interested in quality and safety in aged care mm-hmm. and I was really focusing mm-hmm. on that and that's what I really wanted to create a kind of practice for myself in that space but I didn't know how mm-hmm. and anyway so ultimately I left the law firm thinking I just mm-hmm. want to go and work in clinical governance and oh actually no this is <laughs> I have to say that so back mm-hmm. in March 2021 that's right mm-hmm. March 2021 uh, of course I get, I get an email from APRA saying Look, we're going to close the pandemic subregister register now mm-hmm. you have the option of keeping your current general registration or going back to non-practicing so this was another sort of turning point in my decision Mm. because I thought oh geez what do I do I said you know what it was was such a hard thing to let go of Mm. in the first place and then it boomeranged back at me without asking for it I suddenly got my general registration back again what do I do and at the same time I knew I was becoming more interested in clinical governance and all of that so I thought you know what if I want to work in clinical governance, it makes sense to do that as a doctor yeah. rather than as a lawyer. Yeah. So why don't I do that? So I took up, I kept maintain my general registration. And then uh-huh. that was basically when I was really trying to, I, I thought, okay, that's, I'm going to go and work in clinical governance now and see what, what happens. So that's when I, I left the law firm around then. And um, in a similar way to when I started back in the first time I came back from London with a clean slate thinking, I want to Combine law and medicine somehow, but I don't know mm. what. I don't know how. Let's just see what happens. Same kind of thing. I I did that when I left the law firm. I want to cl- I want to work in clinical governance, but I don't know how, and I don't know <laughs> what, and I don't know what that's going to look like. But let's just see what happens. That's pretty yeah. much what I did in 2021, yeah. and I've been doing that since May 2021.
0: Would you say that with the work that you're doing now, and and I would be interested to hear a little bit about you know what it's like for you day to day. But do you think that is now satisfying the soul of the artist, being (laughs) able to combine the two sort of elements.
1: Absolutely, Dana. You've hit the nail on the head. Yes, Dana, this is my forever job. I finally found it. It took me a really long time to get here. And when I think back now to 1997 in my intern year, all those things I was thinking about at the time and all those things that made me deeply unhappy at the time were all about clinical governance. But I just didn't realize it then. So I take all my learnings from being a med student, through internship, through locum as a locum doctor, through as a lawyer, medical negligence lawyer, uh, as a medical legal advisor, as an aged care lawyer. All of that, I take all of those experience with me in the work that I do now, and those different perspectives. And of course, I still have that legal lens as well. And there is a relationship between clinical governance and regulation so I do look at that. But I very much operate through my heart. The doctor in me, I suppose, is what drives the work. The lawyer in me helps me think about the work. And the soul of me provides all the other stuff around it that just, yeah. It's a bit creative in some ways because you're thinking about solutions and different ideas and yeah.
0: Yeah. So can you take us through a typical day for you now? What What does that involve? Uh, that's actually
1: an impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How does it vary then from day to day? <laughs> every day is so different, Dana. It's crazy. And it, maybe that's what I love about it. It does mean that every day also blends in. So I have no idea if it's a weekday or a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, one of the most challenging things about working for yourself is finding a routine that works or deciding whether you even need one. <laughs> but things like self-care, exercise, eating <laughs> um, can can be difficult to factor into your day, I have to admit. But yeah, typical day, I suppose the first thing I would do really is turn on my computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So really, I spend a lot of time most of my time in front of my computer, partly because obviously obviously, most meetings these days are done through the computer. I don't have to run around to meet people. But having said that, I love meeting people face to face and that's always my preference if I can. So uh, I do always meet clients and potential clients in person at some stage. It's just obviously a lot more time efficient to not always do that. Uh, So yeah, I have a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of emails, a lot of writing a lot of people reaching out for potential projects, but a lot of them don't happen. So this is one thing that I think is from talking to lots of different consultants. And so that's what I've been doing the last two years. I, you know Again, talking to people, meeting with people, learning from people. I think it's very common that out of 10 discussions you have, maybe 0.5 or one of them actually come through to fruition as work. So a lot of my time is spent yeah, just talking about to people about potential work and what their potential needs are. And sometimes actually follows through, sometimes it doesn't. And then other times you get work that comes through, which happens very quickly. And so it can become urgent because of certain timelines. Uh, and it, are your clients usually government bodies or like the health service? Like who are they,
0: if you're allowed to divulge like broadly?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dana. Uh, it could be anyone really. So it has been a government body. It, has, it could be aged care providers. It could be health services, community health services in particular. I actually really love that space because it's so diverse and interesting. And I think community health is so important. But of course, I love aged care as well because that's where I came from. And that goes back to my earlier connection with geriatrics as a medical student. I think my connection with aged care is not necessarily by chance. It's related to that initial passion or that initial interest in supporting older people. It could be disability providers, uh, charities, some health charities, mental health. Digital is the other thing, by the way, growing space in digital.
0: And so for someone who, if they were pretty early in their medical career and just hasn't quite grasped the concept of clinical governance, how would you
1: briefly describe it? (laughs) Good question. So there's lots and lots of Lots and lots of definitions out there, obviously, but I made up a definition. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I just thought, you know what? We've got these words, clinical governance, yeah. and I just get these blank looks every time someone <laughs> asks me what I did. <laughs> and you can't really explain it in terms of you know, processes and policies and all that, whatever, the structures and you know, leadership. So clinical governance tends to get defined by the words that comprise it, whereas I just wanted to look at the meanings of the words themselves. Maybe that's from being a lawyer if we define the word governance as meaning the way we control or direct or oversee or regulate something, and that includes a concept of self-governance, meaning how we control or direct or regulate the way we conduct ourselves as individuals, and if we define the word clinical really broadly as relating to how we support a person's health and well-being to optimise outcomes for them so that Care relationship, then clinical governance is about how we control, regulate, direct, or oversee the way we support a person's health and well being to achieve optimal outcomes for them. If that makes sense.
0: Yes, it does. It actually really does make sense. Yeah, thank you for that.
1: <laughs> that's very much. But the important thing in that definition, Dana, is obviously health as a concept is really broad. So we need to be thinking about social determinants of health as well. And that's where yep. those community yep. health services come in etc but also the word outcomes should also be regarded really broadly to mean the experience of mm. care or the experience of living so not just clinical outcomes in a very medicalized traditional sense yes. but that whole experience of care is super important so that's my definition of clinical governance <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for sharing with me your journey. It's been a long but very interesting one. And what I have learned from today's conversation is that sometimes it does take a bit of trial and error to test out different things so that you can work out what you like or don't like. And I am curious, and I think you did allude to this earlier, looking back now, do you have any regrets? Do you feel like you had to go through what you went through to arrive where you are today? Look, I wouldn't
1: recommend it to <laughs> <laughs> uh, But for me, yes, as a person for me, I think I'm not saying that to work in clinical governance you need to do what I've done and you mm. certainly don't need to be a lawyer or mm. even a doctor. But it's brought me to my journey and I think through brought me to where I am now. And I think one of the things with clinical governance is everyone brings a different perspective and because we're, all everyone's different and it, so I think that's really important to remember. And so my perspective is my perspective and it might not be the same as another person's perspective. Mm. Having said that, we all do tend to very much meet in the middle. You find um, when you talk to people is, you know um, because I am who I am because of mm. all those experiences. And if not for those experiences, who would I be now? And I really don't know.
0: <laughs> mm. I think to me, You would have picked up a lot of skills along the way that would have really helped with the work that you're doing now. So I, I guess I just, the reason why I'm bringing up this question is I have come across young doctors or medical students who often don't want to do certain things and say, for example, because of a research project I did years ago, often they don't want to invest time in particular research projects, for example, because they think, oh, what is their any use to this because it's not relevant to me wanting to become a surgeon and blah, blah, blah. But Sometimes it is actually worth just trying things out for the sake of it. And also, you will pick up skills along the way, even if ultimately you researching about something really random in psychiatry might not be relevant to surgery. You learn skills about how to write a research paper, which will be applicable. I just thought, yeah, even if it didn't necessarily have to go through everything that you went through, but I'm sure that it did gain a lot of experience and skills that ultimately make you really good at your current job.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dana. I think, yeah, it, it's not just about the skills, but also those perspectives and insights mm-hmm. that are really important. And there's those nuances, seeing things that other people won't see. Yeah, <laughs>
0: absolutely. And so, for our final question, I think I can have a guess at how you would answer this because of the clues that I have from our previous interview, but maybe you might surprise me today. In an alternate reality, where you worked in something completely unrelated to law or clinical governance or healthcare, what would you do?
1: Well, if I was any good at it, <laughs> I would be an actor or a screw <laughs> <laughs> Do you still do jazz singing? Because I was hoping that you might say jazz singing. A little bit, actually. Yeah, I'm trying to get back into it. So that's something I am trying to make a bit of time for. But again, it's quite hard just like making time for eating or running, (laughs) which is not good. So I'm fine. But why acting? Oh, I just loved doing it when I was at school. Theatre acting in particular. I actually saw a play last night and I thought, wow, that this is amazing. And, And actually, I don't know, there's something about stepping into a role that's not you and just pretending to be somebody else, I suppose. So I always much preferred acting, at least on stage, than I did public speaking because public speaking, you were speaking as you, mm. whereas acting, you were being somebody else. And I think I'd li- I like that that fantasy. <laughs> um, maybe that kind of matches up a little bit with the way I've lived my life is just I kept changing identities a little bit <laughs> as well. <laughs> now it's all rolled up into one, so... <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Melanie Tan. That was so interesting. I took a lot away from our conversation today and, yeah, I can't wait to see what you do next. Who knows? Maybe, you know, it's never too late. You
1: could become an actor next. (laughs) No, I think that ship has sailed. (laughs) I actually love what I do now, actually. So if I can keep doing what I do now forever, I'll be perfectly happy (laughs) with a bit of jazz singing on the side just to feed my soul (laughs) a bit more. thank you thank you so much dana
0: thanks for listening to the creative careers in medicine podcast a proud member of the talking health tech podcast network visit the creative careers in medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path the creative careers in medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging.